Welcome to The Pin Down, a Detroit Pistons podcast. I'm your host, Wes Davenport from Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys. And since our guy Blake Silverman is out on what looks to be a really awesome vacation and a fantastic time on his part, uh, we brought in the man himself, Sean Corp, Managing Editor of Detroit Bad Boys. Sean, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me as always. Someday we'll cover a win. One one day, hopefully soon. Gotta ask though, before we get into that, did you how how was your Christmas? Did you get to spend some time with family? How how'd all that go? Any any fun traditions? Um we did spend time with family. It was a little bit more disjointed this year than usual, but always fun. Never really felt like Christmas in Michigan. Very gloomy but warm. Not saying I love snow, but I missed a little bit of a dusting, so we'll see how long it takes till I uh, regret those words. How about you? Uh, very similar. My, my wife and I were back in Chicago, uh, so it was roughly the same weather. I think just a touch warmer, but also very gloomy. I think it rained every single day. Like just, you know, it's not what you want for the Christmas spirit, but it was a great time other than that. You know, uh, got to get some good food, hang out with some great people. All, all good stuff. So let's just jump right in, John. You know what? I mean, they did kind of have two moral victories in a row. So nope. let, let's look at the Celtics game here for a little bit. And just where do you, where do you want to start with it? There's plenty that we could talk about on that. Anything that stood out to you? Well, the I mean, the things that stand out are the things that stand out every game. So it makes it both very difficult and very easy to talk about this team. Because there are never any surprises. Uh, the starters were just fine. You wish they were better on defense, but they were doing what they needed to do. And the bench was absolutely atrocious and unplayable almost across the board with nobody reliable you could ask to do much of anything. And so uh, that kind of dictates everything around the game plan. And that's where all the mistakes get made both in coaching rotations and trying to plan for how inept the bench is going to be. So uh, it was all feeling very familiar and inevitable, even with that big lead in the first half for the Pistons against the Celtics. Uh, felt like maybe they had enough of a cushion to pull it out and they were a little more resilient than usual. But I can't say that I was surprised that they dropped 28 in a row. Yeah, you know, I wasn't super surprised either. But I will say on the on that lead, it did get up to 21, which means that I believe two streaks did actually end in Boston uh, during that game because the Celtics had never been down 20 points and the Pistons had never been up 20 points in the same game. Somehow, both of those end. So that's kind of a fun little footnote uh, in an otherwise blown opportunity from the Pistons. Wanted to ask about Kevin Knox, though. He obviously gets the start. Presumably, you know, I would assume he starts because of the uh, hope that he could provide some shooting, some floor spacing. Ends up going 0 for 6, but outside of the shot, you know, how did you think he looked uh, in that game? He had a pretty tough defensive assignment, too. He looked like a wing, which is not something you could say about a lot of Pistons. Uh, he had length and he could move uh, without the ball and a bit with the ball. Uh, his cutting to the rim is something that Isaiah Stewart just could never do, which was a, a bit of a relief to see somebody that was not so stationary when the ball got moved to him. But, you know, you play Kevin Knox because you want a shooter as opposed to Isaiah Livers or a Sawyer Thompson. So when he goes over six, you're like, you know, there there is no right answer when there's only bad options. And uh, Kevin Knox wasn't really the right answer as it turned out. And I don't know if there is one. So the big takeaway for me is when is change going to come? When is the promise change going to come? And when are they going to bite the bullet to just bring in some new bodies? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's really no no winning there, um, especially with how shallow this rotation has turned out to be, right? I mean, a few of the guys that we really thought coming into the season that you could probably count on, guy like Alec Burks, right, to be consistent. He's still shot, I think, four of 12 from three against the Celtics. Not great. You know, you, you'd hope to be getting more out of him. I know he scored double digits, which 
he hasn't been doing, but he did it very, very inefficiently, which is also not what you want. Um, let's uh, let's look at Asar Thompson here. I know he's your guy, so I wanted to bring up. Feel a little bit bad because he's Blake's guy too, and and we had a streak there ending every episode talking about Asar Thompson, which just had him over the moon. But you know he's struggling. I, I've seen a lot of conversation online uh, today after the Nets game as well about him not getting enough minutes. And, you know, I just want to read these up. Just pure counting stats, all right? So in 20 minutes per game, he's averaging in the month of December 6.6 points, 4.7 rebounds, 1.5 assists. In the month of November, uh, pretty good sample size, he was averaging 11.7 points, 8.8 rebounds, 2.4 assists, and only 28 minutes per game. So he's not actually seen a huge minute decrease, but his production's really, really gone down. What do you make of that? Do you think maybe he's hitting a bit of a rookie wall here, or is there something else going on with just you know not being out there to start games? Yeah, I think um, I will uh, for the next thirty seconds or so defend Monty Williams a little bit here. Uh, I think this is not pure mismanagement by Monty Williams. It is that um, Sora is hitting a bit of a wall, and he's he's letting it sort of. Uh, play himself out of his own rhythm and his own game because you can see him make an increasing number of mistakes that the Pistons can't really afford, mainly around turnovers. So I, I understand the sort of let's ratchet back his responsibility. And there's the byproduct of, as every fan has begged for, we need spacing around Cade. And the immediate first move of that is likely going to be remove the worst shooter probably in the league, which is a sore out of the starting lineup with Cade and put somebody else in there. The byproduct of that is it might help Cade, but it's actually or absolutely cratering a opportunities and development because a needs to be the fifth worst offensive player on the floor to function. Uh, and I, in these horrid bench lineups with the Pistons, He's just, there's not enough offensive firepower to cover up for his total lack of shooting. So the defense can easily play four on five. And Asur is basically stuck in a quarter waiting for a kick out. And he can't capitalize on his dynamic athleticism, his cutting ability, his short roll ability, because none of the other Pistons offensive players on the floor can do much of anything. So there's no threat, which means there's no gaps opening up for Asura to exploit. So it just means nothing is happening for Asura right now. And I think it's getting in his head a little bit. So it's sad to see. I hope that either as changes are made or the Pistons start improving offensively in their starting lineup, that creates opportunities, more opportunities for Asura to see the floor. If Jay Nivey all of a sudden goes on a you know tear from three and he becomes a 38% three-point shooter on decent volume, then that opens up a chance where you can say maybe we can afford to get a source offense in the lineup so that we can capitalize on his excellent defense. But until that happens, you're just going to see a sore continue to struggle offensively and probably have a reduced role. My big hope is that um, you know the patron saint of all the Pistons hopes Monty Morris will come back healthy and will be a reliable passer and three-point shooter. And it becomes so much easier to have a sore on the floor with that extra offensive option, either on the bench or in the starting lineup, because there's somebody who can competently do a lot of things that the Pistons need. And that helps everybody, but it most helps a sore and hopefully helps him get back to where he was early in the season. Yeah, I, I would agree with all that. I mean, Morris really would help a lot of guys uh, on that bench squad, specifically Asar Thompson. I will say I have been a bit disappointed uh, this month, kind of looking back at, at some of his games. The the rebounds being down, the blocks and steals being down, those, I don't want to call them energy and effort stats, but there's a little bit of that franticness that he played with very early on in the year that has drop down just a little bit, you know, lower, lower to a lower level. Uh, and I think it shows up a bit on the offensive end as well. I don't think he's cutting as forcefully as he did. Now that may be a by byproduct, as you said, of just having less space 
um, to actually see the cuts ahead of you and, and make them with some authority. But it's not like early on in the season he was playing with, you know, very well-spaced lineups in the first place. Uh, so that was kind of always a problem. I've just been a little disappointed to see all of that stuff drop down, which makes me wonder how much of this is, you know, like you alluded to, maybe just a rookie wall. Maybe he needs a break. I mean, they did this with Marcus Sasser earlier in the season. They sat him down for a week, just let his legs recover a little bit, and then put him right back out there after that little time off. And he did play better. He, he was rejuvenated a little bit. I know he was out of the rotation uh, the last couple of games, but you know, maybe Asar Thompson would benefit from something similar. I don't think yeah, OTE's schedule was was all that compact. So, Yeah, and I, I don't think it's necessarily the rookie wall in the sense of uh, the physicality of the game. I think he's just he's making a lot of mistakes. He's getting frantic, and it's getting in his head a little bit. He's playing frantically to the point where he was starting to foul a lot. He was already a big fouler. Then it got to a point where it was just way too high to to sustain. And now you're seeing a bit of what you did with Duran last year, where he was playing too tentatively because he was afraid of fouling out or afraid of fouling so much he was going to get pulled. And, you know, that's very common for young players, very common for rookies. So you just he needs to play through it. Hopefully he can see an uptick in minutes. It's going to require the Pistons to figure out a reliable rotation, which, you know, good luck for the, with that. Um, I wouldn't be opposed to just sending him to the G League in like a gap in the schedule just so he can play two or three games where he plays 40 minutes. And, you know, Asur obviously is good enough to where he would, you know, dominate Saban Lee-esque in the G League where he's going to score tons of points, get tons of rebounds, blocks, assists basically be the focal point of the offense and that could at least help him find a little bit of that spark and, and maybe a little bit of that comfort level all right let, let's talk about the the one positive thing well, i guess there were a couple from the celtics game but going back a week or so the the one positive thing that the pistons have had going for him and that's Cade cunningham and you know, obviously he had a very very good first half i thought he played pretty well in the second half too even though he wasn't scoring the ball much and following up that uh, that Celtics game previously was the Nets game where he put up 40 for the second time in I think three games. So I wanted to bring this up from from YouTube user because you know he brings up a good point. He says I'm not worried about Cade long term, but when does he start playing four good quarters of basketball? I think that part of the problem there might be coaching. I would actually disagree a little bit with this. I do think he played well five good periods of basketball against the Celtics. He was in foul trouble in the first half against the Nets, bounced back. That was really nice to see. But that Hawks game he played, that felt like a wire-to-wire good game from him. I I think he is. I I don't think the scoring's, you know, as consistent between quarter to quarter. But, you know, you look at that Celtics game, they switched Drew Holiday onto him and started blitzing him on every, every single ball screen. They were intentionally getting the ball out of his hands, and he was making the right reads out of that nine times out of ten, and that was really great to see. So I, I do think he's playing good four good quarters of basketball. How about you? I I think that you're mostly correct. I think also that the game plan a little bit was to get him less responsibility in the second half so he could play so many second half minutes. Um, and I think he mostly responded well. The problem is the Pistons are so talent deficient that it is very hard for the team as a whole string together a good half of basketball if Cade Cunningham is not a focal point of the offense. So even if he's making the right reads and and acknowledging that it'd be better if he didn't have the ball because they're blitzing him and he's translating that into some good defense, which I think he mostly did in the second half, especially late against the Celtics. That's all great. But like, where's the offense come from? Uh, There's so few ways to generate that offense that, it makes it very difficult and you just needed Cade to have a little bit of gas in the tank. And I think he looked very tired. He wasn't attacking the middle, even when he was getting kickouts, like he was in the first half. I just don't think he had that kind of energy or the legs under him to really exploit anything that Boston was giving him, which was not Cade's fault. You know, he's played, so many minutes, so many games in a row trying to will this team to a victory. It was just unfortunate that this sort of wall hit him 
right when the Pistons had a game within their grasp. And you just hope that they get a bit of rest. Then the next game, he can basically do the same thing and see if it's, you know, four quarters of solid scoring, solid distribution, limited turnovers. And that could equate to a Pistons victory someday, maybe as soon as the next game. I do wonder if maybe they figured uh, something out here in the fourth quarter and in overtime of the Celtics game. Because, I mean, obviously the result is not what we all would have wanted, right? But after that third quarter where the Celtics make that huge run, totally wipe out the deficit, it's pretty much a 0-0 game from that point on. And they played them fairly square, fairly evenly. Not because Cade was you know, on pace to score 40 points, but because Bojan Bogdanovic actually did step up there, even though he didn't shoot the three all that well. Jaden Ivey, that might have been his best game in recent memory. I mean, he wasn't doing as much off isolations, right? He was getting the ball on rotation, on kickouts, and either hitting the open shot or just vacuuming up all the space in front of him in one or two steps in the blink of an eye because he's so fast and athletic and making things happen that way. And he ended up having, like we said, really, really, really good game. So I I wonder if some of that could be sustainable. Now, if maybe those three have kind of figured out a little bit of a a synergy where, okay, if we take Kate away, then, you know, Jay Nivey getting downhill fast, Bojan Bogdanovic on the kickouts. It looked sustainable is what I'm saying. I think it didn't work more so because the Celtics are, are so dang good. Less so because the Pistons really just fumbled the bag there. Yeah, I mean, the Pistons' lack of size available really stood out against the Celtics. Their absolute commitment to switching bigs anytime the opposing offense wants them to was readily apparent every time you saw Jaden Ivey and Cade Cunningham just sitting in the lane on Chris Stapps without a prayer. It's It was very frustrating. You're seeing more sustainable, functional offense from the Pistons. That's good. That's much needed. The defensive issues are still readily apparent. You're seeing huge defensive lapses with uh, Bohan, and you're seeing it with Jay Nivey. You're seeing it in Spurs with Kate Cunningham. They don't have enough functional defenders. They don't have enough functional defense uh, offensive players. They don't have any players that can give you both at the same time which is always distressing. So like, it's always going to be whack-a-mole with this uh, team. And you're just hoping that an opponent has a sustained cold shooting night from three, like the Celtics did for quite a while, or one of the offensive players on Detroit has an absolute heater. Like we're still waiting for a six, three game from Bogdanovich or Burks, somebody that can just get insanely hot and start making everything. Uh, And that's really what they need to just end this losing streak, get out of this and just clear their heads, get the national spotlight off of them and start losing in a more normal, acceptable way. Yeah, I I would agree with all that. And and the last thing I'll say on on that Celtics game with with Cade specifically, you brought up the defense. That second half, I I do think that might have been the best stretch of defensive effort we've seen out of him this season, which is something that's honestly been a little bit disappointing. He's not been great on that end of the floor all year. Now he's being asked to do a lot offensively, and I don't really think it's a coincidence that, like you said, when he's getting the ball out of his hands so much on offense because they're trying to take him away, that all of a sudden the defensive effort can pick up. He's got a couple of clutch blocks on Jason Tatum. Like, all that's really great to see. So, you know, Maybe we do get a little ba- little bit of balance there. Maybe we do see Jaden Ivey continue to play like he did in that second half. Maybe Boyan goes off for six threes. Like They do kind of need to play perfect. You're right. They, they do kind of need to play perfect to get a win. And even when they're playing perfect, which they almost did against the Celtics, they, they still need imperfection on the other end, which not going to get that from Boston. Yeah, they need to make a trade or multiple trades to refashion this rotation. They need to sacrifice some flexibility. I'm not I'm hoping that there's a deal out there that does not require them to sacrifice an actual part of the future and I'm defining the future as Cunningham, Ivy, Duran and Thompson. If those four players are off the table but you can do pretty much anything else, 
to just get an actual defensive center who can rebound and seal off the paint just a little bit. If you can get an actual two-way wing, who's not even great on either end, but just good, just league average on both ends at the same time at the wing, then you can do so much more with this lineup and it makes other people's jobs so much easier. It could allow the Pistons to string together some quality defensive possessions where an opponent doesn't score on five straight trips, which means a team like Detroit who has a struggling offense, they don't need to play perfect because they can rely a bit on defense. That would be a godsend for this team. And I'm just waiting for it to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen because everybody in the league knows that they're playing with a hand tied behind their back and should be desperate to make a deal, which means they'll give up more than they should for any reasonable deal, which means they're not making the deal, which means we're just in this perpetual cycle of doing nothing and seeing the same result over and over again. All right, let's keep, let's keep on this train of thought here. We got a question from YouTube user, our guy, he asks, how do they bring in new players? They don't have very good tradable assets. It's going to be interesting to see if Troy Weaver can find a way to a good move sooner rather than later. So what do you think in terms of the assets that they have on this roster in order to make you know one of those not big but not little moves that, that you were alluding to there? It, it really depends on who's available and, and what they're willing to stomach. Look, they have upwards of $40 million uh, in going into the offseason. I think that they could create more space if a deal came along and it required a sign and trade and whatever. So it's not like they can't sacrifice some of that cap space in the future and still sign, allegedly sign an impact player should someone actually want to take their money and play for the Pistons. So I'm thinking about all the expiring contracts the Pistons have that are not providing useful minutes. That could be. Um, uh, James Wiseman, Joe Harris, chief among them, Killian Hayes. I think that it's very unlikely they resign him. He's got an option year, so you could either give him to a team that just wants to take a flyer or take on more money for more years and treat him as an expiring contract. They have tons of expiring contract space that they can move. I think they should even be willing to move Bogdanovich for somebody who is not as good of an offensive threat, but a much better defender, that should be on the table because this idea that they should trade him for two first-round picks, which is what the rumor has always been, that that was Troy Weaver's asking price. I don't want two first-round picks. I don't want the future. I want a competent present. So be willing to put him on the table for two rotation players of slightly lesser quality, but much better defensive quality. and. Just target a wing, target a big man, get rid of Wiseman if you can, see if you can move on from Bagley, who has a year left on his deal, who should be eminently movable. Those are the kind of pieces that you have in play. If there's some team that wants to create a little bit of cap flexibility, if there's some team that wants to lower a ginormous tax bill uh, in the future by just getting some uh, expiring money, Take some sort of lower end rotation piece off their roster because he's probably going to play lots of minutes and do lots of good things on the Pistons. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with all that. And I do think most of those moves that you're talking about, you know, like the salary dump, just trying to create some space uh, in, in the future for this upcoming offseason. Most of those I do think are probably going to be happening at the deadline, right? Like, I, I don't really think you're going to entice a team like Atlanta, who's got a really, really bad cap sheet to get off one of their larger contracts for not too much other than salary relief uh, right now. I think you're probably waiting until the market's more mature and people know where everyone else stands before some of those things really come into play. Outside of that, I'm not sure. I think YouTube users, right, uh, I guess is, is, the, is the short answer. I, I do think that they have the horses to go make a bigger move and they've got a couple of like just cut them, send them out for a second round pick sort of guys. But in terms of that middle ground, 
I'm not sure how much firepower they really have just to add multiple or even one one or two solid rotation guys uh, if it's not purely a salary dump sort of move. And that does that does make me worry a little bit. You know, if it's kind of all or not much, that's a really tough position to be in when your team is as bad as, as this Pistons team is. Yeah, and there's, um, I mean, to be fair to Troy Weaver, there is a, a disconnect between his motivation to make a deal now and literally every other team's motivation to make a deal now, which makes it very difficult to find a willing trade partner because everyone else is much more comfortable waiting for the trade deadline, waiting to see who becomes available, waiting for the landscape to settle to see what's on the table before they make the move that they know is sort of on their docket to change their team before the trade deadline. The only team that's desperate to make a move and change things up in December is the Detroit Pistons. So you're finding a willing trade partner is very difficult. And the only way that you could find a willing trade partner today, you know, somewhat logically would be somebody who's trying to fleece you because that's the only way they'll step into the market early. So are the Pistons so desperate they should let themselves get fleeced or should they just accept continual losing? You know, (laughs) they just need to win so that they can, you know, take the option off the table. Maybe that changes the market significantly because the losing streak is over and everybody knows that they're not quite as desperate as they were the day before. They just need a nice big reset by winning a game and being, you know, just on track to have the worst record in NBA history for a full season instead of the longest losing streak in NBA history. Yeah, neither of those are good. <laughs> neither are good, but I, I'm with you. Uh, I do think the like the desperation effect is just a little bit overstated, only in, in the sense that I'm not sure other teams would be actively trying to screw over uh, the Detroit Pistons. If a trade is helpful to them, they would consider it. Um, anything beyond that, you know, there's there are 29 other teams that you could be looking at as well other than the Pistons. So there, there's some of it. I, I just don't think it's a massive effect. Um, well, so I think the effect is the effect of the calendar. It's I might make this move in February, but I don't want to make it in December. So the only way I'll make it in December is if you add a little more and a little more, then the math is off and it doesn't make sense for the Pistons any longer. And if you try and push for a reasonable deal, the other team can rightly say, well, this is a fine deal, but there's so many different ways I could get a better deal if I wait. So why wouldn't I wait? Like that, that's the sort of rock and a hard place that the Pistons find themselves in with any potential trade partner. They're having very different conversations with very different motivations, even if both play, both franchises know what they're willing to take back and what they're willing to give up. It's, it's why do I make this move now versus why do I not wait and make it later? Yeah, totally agree. So speaking on some moves, this is from Detroit Pistons 3 in the DBB comments. They ask, if you were the GM, what were two? What are two or three key moves you would immediately make either right now or in the offseason uh, to help turn the ship around? Well, if I was trying to do something this season, I would either start cutting players to bring in fresh bodies or immediately trade for that salary if I could find it out there. I think that's the most immediate thing that the Pistons could do. I don't think the problem is that they have this vague notion that they'll be able to use these expiring salaries for much great benefit down the line because they can make a trade at the deadline or they can make a trade in the offseason. And they could sign and trade and it would be great, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Or they want somebody's bird rights. And so they'll use that expiring salary. Problem is they've been doing the stance for years and nobody really takes them up on it. And this is just James Wiseman is dead weight on the Pistons roster. Joe Harris is dead weight on the Pistons roster. They could be replaced and you could find two more functional players that serve a better purpose for the Pistons immediately by signing a player off the street. So I think if I'm really thinking desperation, I'm thinking, you know, if I can't trade this for cap space now, 
maybe I just say goodbye to Joe Harris and sign a wing off the street or be much more aggressive about do I really want to give my two-way players minutes in the Pistons rotation to try and add energy, try and add defense, or do these two-way players not really fit what I need and I should release them and sign other two-way players so I can have some extra bodies. They just need extra bodies. They need to move on from players that are not contributing, like Isaiah Livers is not delivering. Killian Hayes will not provide what the Pistons need, short-term or long-term. They need to be willing to just say goodbye or move on from those. I think that I would go to my owner and ask very seriously if this head coach is the right man for this rebuild and his his philosophy, his communication style, his willingness to adapt. I think that there's hard questions that need to be had, and I think a billionaire can absorb a lot of uh, dead head coach contract money. Just have that conversation. Uh, so the immediate moves in the offseason, I would aggressively pursue the free agent market, not for the biggest fish, but for functional rotation pieces. In the more immediate present of this current season, I'd be willing to just cut some dead weight and bring in new bodies to try and rejigger the, the mojo within the rotation, the energy, the who's doing what on a functional basis, because there's too many players that you just know you can't rely on. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree uh, with most of that. And I'm, I'm going to answer this one quickly, and then we're going to jump back to the uh, the conversation around Monty Williams, because I think that's an important one, and we really haven't had it uh, too often on this podcast. So we'll, we'll dive into that in a couple seconds. But I think, all right, so two to three key moves I, I would want to make either in-season or in the off-season. I kind of look at the the roster right now as between now and the start of next season, you roughly need five or six rotation level players to add just to be competent next year. And I think the only guy on this roster that you can confidently build around is Cade Cunningham. I don't know how far that's going to take you. I don't know if he's the best player on a championship team, but I bet you he can take you to the playoffs if you build a confident supporting staff around him. So that would be my goal. Um, I think you do want to get a head start on that in the season. Unfortunately, that's probably a bigger move. So you're looking at moving one of the three non-Cade Cunningham uh, young pieces, trying to cash one of those in. I would be in favor of that if it's a good fit, like not just for anybody, you know, not uh, – you don't want to just go get like Zion Williamson or something for, for fun. It's got to be a, a really, really good fit next to Kate Cunningham. And I think then it would be worth it. So I, I might be looking into one of those types of moves. And then in the offseason, try to spend and, and trade as much as you can just to add the rotation pieces in so that you do, at the end of it all, have five or six new players that are all rotation caliber and two new starting wings because they don't have any starting caliber wings. Uh, I I like Bojan. Bojan's best off the bench on a very good team. Okay, like he's not a starting caliber wing, so that that's where I think you got to upgrade. Um, do you have any thoughts on that before we dive into Monty Williams? No, I think that all sounds good. I think my three pinnacle pieces would be I I see a future where it's pretty reasonable to build something around Cade Thompson and Duran. Those are the three most important pieces that play very distinct roles in very distinct positions that I think complement each other best. So use that as a starting point. Try and figure out what else you can do. Don't trade Jaden Ivey for Zach Levine. Have conversations about trading Jaden Ivey for uh, DeJounte Murray, maybe. Something like that. It's, it's so tough for me because I think if I were to rank these young guys, it would be Cade, Jaden Ivey, Asar Thompson, Jalen Duran. But I think that in order, top down, that's also the best return you would be getting. You'd get the most for Cade, the least for Duran. So it makes it really tough when you're like, okay, I want the best possible return I could get for a young guy not named Cade Cunningham. But I also really want to keep Jaden Ivey because games like that Celtics game really show you what he could do uh, paired yeah. next to Cade. I think that that pairing could really be buildable. But at the same time, you're, 
I don't know how much you're going to get for Jalen Duran. He's a rim-running center. Like, yeah, he's young, but he's a rim-running center, and he's not a great defender. And Azar Thompson might be the worst shooter in the NBA. Like, I don't know how much there is there. Um, it just makes it difficult. They're kind of in a no-win situation. Uh, all right, so let's talk about Monty Williams. This is from KCP for three, and it's through the DBB comments. Uh, just in general, what are your thoughts on Monty? You you brought up earlier that you might want to have that conversation. Maybe he wasn't the right hire. Maybe we need to move on. Um, you know, maybe maybe build on that and just your thoughts in general uh, as well. So I want to I want to couch my analysis and the fact that it's very easy to criticize somebody when they have no good options available to them because you can see things not working on the floor and you can simply say, why didn't you do this other thing? Well, if I did this other thing, that also wouldn't have worked because these players aren't very good and they don't fit well together. And it's hard to put five players on the floor at a time that play well and then manage 48 minutes. Okay. All that being said, there's not much that has impressed me about Monty Williams performance this season. I don't think that he is backing up what he says in reflection after games, into game planning, into scheming, into his rotations. I think he is too he's too late to abandon things that aren't working. I just don't I just don't see much to be impressed by, but this is also not a very impressive roster. So it's not necessarily this X and O's that most concern me with Monty Williams. I just don't know if these players particularly enjoy playing for him and they need the buy-in of these young players with their coach. Uh, His job is to make the whole better than the parts of the team. He's most certainly not doing that. He's getting less out of this roster than could be conceivably imagined based on, you know, the limitations of that roster. He's, he's just not doing anything that, is above and beyond what you could expect from anyone else. He's also uh, a very strong-willed, stubborn person that can grade a lot of people. It works when you're winning. It's terrible when you're losing. I think that it's pretty plain that Monty Williams' approach with Jaden Ivey has uh, not been good for Jaden Ivey, even as much as he's had some natural development. There's just something missing out of Ivy's game and you can see it in his demeanor on the floor as much as he won't say it publicly. I just don't think he's having a very fun season, even as he has improved in a lot of areas. I just don't like the way he uses Isaiah Stewart. I don't like the way he uses Bogdanovich. I don't like how he's continually going back to players who aren't performing instead of short shortening up his rotation. So there's not a lot for me to be impressed by. There's a, a fear I have that he's alienating core pieces like Cade Cunningham. If if Cade Cunningham doesn't like playing for him or doesn't think he's the right fit, then what are we really doing here? Like you're a billionaire, Tom Gores, sacrifice a big chunk of money and try and find somebody that actually fits and will make this roster better than you know all its individual parts i think the the difficult conversation around monty williams is that like he is a good coach we have we have years of history that suggest he's he's a very good coach you know they didn't just hand him this contract for no reason right he he's backed it up previously so you you weigh that fact against the fact that this is more or less the same roster as it was last year. In fact, they've added a Cade Cunningham and an Asar Thompson and a Marcus Sasser um, and some, you know, bottom end of, of the bench pieces. It's, it's more or less the same roster. Dwayne Casey got more out of less. Dwayne Casey had guys, um, you know, I don't want to say that, he didn't lose the locker room. There was definitely a little bit of malaise there n- near the end uh, of this this past season, but it wasn't. Um, how do I say this? You didn't see so many like ten thousand yard stares on the bench when the the clock's winding down in, in the Dwayne Casey era, even when things were going negatively. And it does seem that Monty Williams has a very very different style of how he handles the players. So I'm 
you know, I, I don't know. We don't know. We're not involved with any of this. We don't have any behind the scenes uh, information. Just just from what it looks like, it definitely looks like whatever it is, isn't working as well as it even did last year um, because Casey was able to get more out uh, of this group. So, you know, what's the fix for that? Is this maybe why Monty Williams wanted such a long contract? You know, is it possible he came in thinking this is going to be a long-term thing? We're not as close as you guys think. Um, and that's why he wanted that sort of protection uh, over, over the course of multiple seasons. Maybe, you know, I, I do wonder if that's part of it. If he just kind of looked up and down and said, yeah, this isn't going to be it. We're going to be in, we're going to be at the bottom for a while still. Sorry. Um, and then he still took, took the contract because he wanted to commit for years multiple instead of just one or two. I don't know. It, it's really, it's really, really difficult. Uh, I think from an outsider's perspective to truly understand some of the decisions that have been made because I'm with you. I don't like a lot of the rotation decisions. I don't think a lot of it's made sense. Isaiah Stewart, first and foremost, you know, he's not a four. He, we thought maybe he could be, he's not, he's a floor, floor spacing five and that's fine. That's great. Play him like it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I think one thing I want to kind of key in on that you said is the thousand yard stairs that you're seeing. I think there's two options. You're seeing those looks because they had confidence. They believed in what they're doing. They start out well, then they hit the skid and they were absolutely shell shocked. I think that's extremely likely scenario that this has surprised them and they don't know how to get out of it. And they're so young and so mistake prone and they can't afford to make these mistakes. So they just can't get that win. And it's snowballing and you're seeing these looks. That's one option on the table. The second option is the locker room is not a good place. The vibes are not good. The coaching staff and the players don't have good relationships. And that generates those same kind of looks. So when the Pistons finally win, which will happen one day, and this streak is over, you're going to learn a lot about whether the demeanor changes or not. If absolutely nothing changes and they're still looking just as despondent when they're winning, you know, three out of 10 games instead of zero out of 10 games, then you're going to know that this coaching staff and these players, they don't fit together. And then you have to have really hard conversations about what matters most to this organization and how do you get out of this? Do you get out of it behind these young players? commit to building around the pieces that you believe in the pieces that are showing they have a future and replace the coach and or the coaching staff. Or do you say these coaches are good. These players don't mesh. They're just not living up to what is expected of them. We need to start sending out most of these players for other pieces. You know, I think I would lean more heavily on this is not a good coaching fit for these players. And I'd be willing to move on because I'm just not seeing much to be impressed by. As the Pistons get better, it's easier to see whether there will be more to be impressed by if they change things this season or add actual pieces in the offseason. But like there, there's no benefit of the doubt I can extend to this point because the early results have been so bad. You could see in the first Maurice Cheek season, he was a terrible head coach. And he needed to go. You could see it with Michael Curry instantly. Those players didn't have as good of a track record, obviously, as Monty Williams. But I can only judge by what I see, and I'm not seeing anything to be impressed by. I think you bring up a really, really good point uh, when it comes to, like, when they do end the streak, right? When they do end the streak, what's the response going to be? Because I think the the gut feeling, you know, prevailing wisdom is going to be that, hey, you know, they're young. They got the monkey off their back. And they're going to be better after that because, you know, we did see them play four good competitive basketball games to start the season before all of this, you know, they, they blow the lead versus the Blazers. And then here we go. Um, if they don't, you're absolutely right. That's going to speak volumes. If you're still getting the same looks on the bench, if you're still getting the same, you know, wall that they hit somewhere in the second half and just can't recover from, um, it's not if it comes to that and they don't really bounce back 
and start to get a little bit of momentum, feel feel a little bit better about themselves after a win or two, um, then I, I think you're right. It, it would really show something about the locker room, uh, less so uh, about the players. Let's let's jump on to this one from YouTube user again, our guy with all the questions. Appreciate you. Uh, he says, it seems like in December, Zach Levine has no trade market, according to the national media. Do you think Zach Levine is a positive value contract right now? Uh, certainly he's not a pa- positive value contract, and that's why he's still on the Bulls. He's also currently injured. I think it's not a completely fake injury, uh, but I think both sides are willing to let the injury linger as long as possible. Unfortunately for both sides, I don't think that Levine can be moved until he shows he can be healthy, and he can shows that the Bulls, who have sort of figured some things out, and continue winning at least at their pace with Levine back in the lineup because it's just been too clean of a Levine is out and all of a sudden the Bulls start winning. So that that does not uh, bolster Levine's trade value very much. Um, I think that if if the Pistons could literally get Zach Levine uh, for just expiring contracts, that is the kind of disgusting bullet they must bite. Uh, that's like their punishment for being so inept and incompetent in building this roster. And it would carve into a huge amount of future cap space, but it would also help them more immediately offensively and just help them figure things out. So if I could literally get Zach Levine for nothing, I would maybe think about it, but there's no such thing as nothing because he makes $140 million or whatever he has going forward. Contracts these days are very short, so that helps, but there's only so much money you have every offseason. Does Zach Levine solve all your problems? Not even close. So if you add Zach Levine and you got rid of a bunch of junk, how do you replace all that junk you lost with actual legitimate players? It would be hard to get what they need with veteran minimum type guys. Uh, But, you know, if, if it was literally for nothing, I'm desperate. I don't want to overthink it. Just do something. But I don't think that the Pistons will trade for Zach Levine, to be clear. I don't think it would be catastrophic catastrophic if they didn't trade for Zach Levine because he has so many uh, negatives in you know what he can't do and what the Pistons need. And I don't think he's going to be moved anytime soon because I don't see teams out there that would want him for for very much. No, I I think uh, you're you're looking at it the right way. I, I agree with you. Like nationally, with, with every other team, he's probably at least a neutral value contract, just based on the lack of enthusiasm uh, in, in the trade market for him. I do think for the Pistons specifically, um, the one thing that he does really well is you know shoot and score, which makes life a lot easier uh, for for Cade Cunningham and whoever else is still on the roster. Like if if you can guarantee a healthy Zach Levine, you probably couldn't find right now a better backcourt pairing um, for Cade Cunningham. Like within reasonable, maybe they could acquire him within the next year or two. Uh, types of Offensive guys, right? Backcourt like pairing. I, yes, but but I will say Zach Levine taking more of a scoring load would push Cade Cunningham down a rung. Hopefully that leads to more of the defense that we saw in the second half against the Celtics, less so of what we've been seeing all season. Like I, I am, I would be in favor of something that can push Cade down to like number two instead of number one. I, I think that'd be really good. Um, like the problem is the health. Yeah, the problem is the health. And and do you really want to give up one of the the three young guys that you have on this roster that are worth much of anything? for a guy with a spotty health history who's coming up on 30. And I don't think the contract is as bad as people are thinking. Um, It's a very large contract, but as the cap continues to grow these next few years, it's not going to be as large as we think. Like they'll still have plenty of space to play around with, even if they eat that. Um, I don't expect them to trade for for Zach Levine either. I I would bet the Bulls want more than what the Pistons would be willing to offer. But
Yeah, I'm sure the Bulls want more than what anyone's willing to offer, and that's that's why he's still there, and they'll just wait it out and hope something comes along. Uh, I will stick up for Zach Levine in, in this way. Not only do I think Zach Levine would help Cade Cunningham by taking that pressure off and allowing Cade to focus a bit more on defense, focus a bit less on creating all this offense, I think the reverse is also true. Zach Levine in Chicago has not played with uh, backcourt pairings that necessitate getting the ball out of Zach Levine's hands, and he tries to do way too much. He's way over his skis in talent level as a facilitator. He's a very bad facilitator. He's a good offensive scorer, but you, you can't ask him to create with the ball in his hands for others, and he makes a lot of mistakes. He creates a lot of turnovers. Um you know, it'd be great if you had a good secondary ball handler with Cade, but that's not Levine. But he does take some of that offensive load out. Conversely, uh, if Zach Levine could only focus on shooting and scoring and less on playmaking and creating for others, and you could put a little bit more of that onus of orchestration on Cade, then I think both players would benefit. And you would see a lot more production and productive value from Levine. He had much less playmaking responsibility and just the same amount of scoring responsibility. And I, I might even be a little bit more positive on the playmaking aspect of it. I think he can make, you know, basic reads, which is good enough as a secondary guy. I, I He's not going to be creating fantastic looks for people, but if he drives and draws like four guys, he'll make a kick out, you know, like good enough. I'll take that. I don't want him. Yeah, he's just he's doing way too much in Chicago when he plays. Yes. He's he's. Tr- I think some of that is self inflicted because he probably thinks he can do more than he can do, and and you know when you're on a struggling team, that's what the veterans do. They put it on themselves to do everything, and that doesn't help anybody often. So if if Zach Levine could find himself in a place where he is just this absolutely lethal scorer on a few levels, then that's best for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And that's the only reason I'd consider it. I do think the fit is good enough where it's worth thinking about. I just don't think there's a uh, a trade fit necessarily. Bonus points, Zach Levine and Kate Cunningham backcourt means you can put a Sir Thompson back in the starting lineup and he'd, remains one of the best rookies in the league and i become a very happy person so what you're saying is they definitely need to trade Jaden ivy for zach levine got it all right moving on <laughs> i know you're not saying that john i'll get your time uh this is from uh richard brooks on twitter uh we got a twitter comment that's great saying uh the season is lost prioritize prioritize playing time for asar thompson and Jaden ivy should be a focus would you agree with that? Um, or would you think there's maybe more nuance there? Uh, what are your thoughts? I think that as soon as they get a win, then yes, that becomes much more of a conversation. They really just need a win. I don't care who it takes benching or deprioritizing or emphasizing to make that happen. Uh, they just need a win. Then we can talk about what makes sense for the long term. Obviously, this team is one of the worst teams in the league. Obviously, they're most likely to finish with the worst record. I think very clearly they're in that group of the bottom four teams, no matter what they do and no matter what moves they make. Unless they moved heaven and earth and sacrificed everything in the future for us stupidly for the present, they're going to finish with one of the four worst records and be one of the four worst teams. That's very clear. Therefore, you have to figure out who matters and you try and build around them. Cade Cunningham matters. You need to figure out who makes sense to put around him. I want that to be Jaden Ivey because Jaden Ivey has a lot of great skills that complement Cade, but Cade probably needs another facilitator, and that's the thing that Jaden Ivey struggles with quite a bit. He showed a lot of progress in that rookie year when he was thrust into this point guard role. Maybe it's just, you know, longer-term development there and... Hopefully the team has the time to wait that out and figure that out. I think that I want Jaden Ivey playing a lot. I don't know if it's as a starter or off the bench because I think I want the ball in Jaden Ivey's hands 
all the time when he's on the floor. So maybe he is that um, backup point guard. And then you kind of rotate around in a pretty staggered way with Cade. So they're sharing minutes, but they're not starting together. Maybe they finish together as the game sort of evolves. I think that matters. I think that next you need as much time for a Sir Thompson as you can, which means you need to put a Sir Thompson in lineups where he's the worst offensive player on the floor. It's very hard for the Pistons to do that now because like if he shares the floor with Isaiah Livers and Killian Hayes, that's like the Spider-Man meme of offensive incompetence, uh, figuring out, you know, who's the alpha in this situation and who's uh, standing in the corner. There's only so many corners on the floor that you can hide people. You can't have three guys there. So like, what are we doing? It's, it's harder to get those minutes for a sore off the bench. And it's also hard for the team to argue he should be in the starting lineup. If Cade is, the most important player to factor into what your game plan is. I hope that the Pistons either improve internally to the point with Jay Nivey shot improving or making a deal or figuring things out so that a sore Thompson can get that starting lineup rolled back because he does so much. Well, I understand that it's, he's in a bit of a rut. He's struggling a bit and now he's kind of lost on the bench. There's going to be ebbs and flows of this rookie season. I still believe he's going to, at the end of the season, play a ton of minutes. I'm less convinced about how many minutes Ivy's going to see when it's all said and done, because I really don't think that Monty Williams particularly likes putting him on the floor because I don't think he trusts him as a ball handler or a defender. So it's going to be a tougher go there. But I I think there's ways to get all three of those guys' minutes, and that is a an important focus. But that doesn't mean they all share the floor all at the same time. No, I, I agree, uh, especially with I would want Jaden Ivey to be a focus. Not sure if the team will want Jaden Ivey to be a focus. Um, but I, I think, you know, Richard, those are the two guys on this roster that have all-star type ceilings to me. You know, I'm not I'm not totally convinced on Jalen Dern. I know some people are, um, and, and I respect that, you know, you, the people that are could, could be absolutely right. To me, I see a rim runner who's not a really great defender right now, and that's pretty tough to become significantly better at as, as a shot blocker in the NBA. So you look at Asar and you look at Jaden Ivey, and those are your guys that, like, if you could get one or both of them to really hit, that's kind of your, your get-rich-quick sort of scenario, right? If both of those guys could really take a leap in the next year or two, then – all the ills are fixed. Jaden Ivey's the guy averaging like 25 points a game and being good enough as a passer that, you know, it lets Cade play off the ball a little bit. And Asar Thompson is already currently the best wing defender they have. Well, maybe he improves his ball handling so that he can get downhill pretty consistently and that shot doesn't matter as much, right? I do think playing time is probably the, the quickest way for them to get there, especially with how bad this team is. Like Killian Hayes should not be playing over Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey is currently a better player than Killian Hayes and has a much higher ceiling as a as a future player as well. He's not all the time, which is baffling. So I would prioritize both of them. I'm not sure that that's going to happen, I guess is the short answer there. Yeah, I think that I would be... Maybe the team is afraid to lose Asura's defense as an option on the bench, but I would just let him learn some of those things in the G League to get those reps because I want him to be a secondary ball handler. And I think being able to pass in, you know, high leverage situations at a professional level would really help mitigate some of the uh, limitations Asura has as a shooter, which obviously has great limitations there. But his his ball handling mistakes have been so bad. He is just tossing the ball at 100 miles an hour to an opponent because his teammate doesn't expect to pass because he shouldn't be expecting to pass. Like the passing from a sore lately has been quite poor. I think that's a really valuable part of the game he needs to learn. So whether he learns it with minutes with the Pistons or he learns it in the G League, I think that's time well spent. I think Jaden Ivey is a great player to build around. 
the question is, is he a great point guard? And the question then becomes, is does Cade need a point guard to play with? I think that's Monty Williams' whole point of view right now. I want a point guard playing alongside Cade Cunningham. Therefore, I'm going to play Killian Hayes. Therefore, I'm going to deprioritize Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey could learn those skills. You know, he's so young. It's the second year. You don't want, he's not a finished product. If he can learn to shoot an acceptable level, if he can learn to play point guard at an acceptable level, he's a great compliment to Cade long term. If he doesn't get there, if the determination is he won't ever get there, then you move on. But I think that's, that is the long and short of why Killian Hayes has played and is playing because it's very simply the Pistons want a point guard on the floor with Cade. Killian Hayes is a point guard. If Monty Morris had been healthy the whole season, I am almost 100% confident the opening night starting lineup would have been Cade Cunningham and Monty Morris. And they would have stuck with that going forward. I wouldn't hate if Morris were starting uh, when, when he gets healthy. He, he would fit really well. Um, it, it's funny, you know, we're talking about uh, Jaden Ivey like that. And and I, I agree with you. I don't think he really is a uh, point guard. So if, if that's really Monty's calculation, like I'm with him on that. Um, you know, we're talking about Zach Levine as a pairing earlier for Cade Cunningham. I I feel like you could probably get about 65, 70% of that right now if you just kind of prioritize Jaden Ivey along with Cade Cunningham because the limitations that he has as a passer are uh, quite similar. You know, he's not making any advanced reads. He's not even making like one step ahead reads where he sees a guy rotating and knows to go this way instead of that. But he makes the basic ones and he drives enough and gets enough gravity when he's getting downhill that he makes the kickouts that you, you really want to see out of him. Um, so so the fact that he could do just enough, like I, I think you could really make it work if you allow him to leverage his scoring um, more like we saw against the Celtics. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed. We'll see. Let, let's end on this one, uh, Sean. This is from QT asking, when does this losing streak end? Who is the team you think they're going to beat? Let's see here. The next players on the docket are the Raptors, the Rockets, and the Jazz. I suppose if you're a betting person, which I am not, those are three good teams to have on the docket. Not that they're bad, not that they're not clearly superior to the Pistons, but they can be prone to some uh, subpar performances. So, you know, sometime early in January is possible. Uh, after that, they play the Warriors, Nuggets, Kings. That's pretty rough. Then you're already at, you know, mid-January, and you play the Spurs, Rockets, and Wizards. So it looks like in the next nine, you have, you know, pockets of three games where you could talk yourself into a chance that the Pistons end this thing. But you can't go into any game this season expecting the Pistons are going to win. So, like, when does it end? You know, throw a dart. <laughs> they'll, they'll win at some point. It will be surprising. It will be mostly because the other team didn't play up to their own expectations. And then the streak will be over and everyone will move on. But uh, I can't say when that's going to happen. So I will predict randomly it will be January 12th at home against the Rockets, which means they will have lost 35 straight going into that game. Ouch. <laughs> No, no other response to that. I'll, you know, I'll try to be more uh, positive. I, I'll say one of these next two games. So either the Raptors or the Rockets. I, I think they might pull one out. On the backs entirely of they've been close a few times now uh, over the past five or six games. It looks like Cade Cunningham has kind of figured out the things he needs to do to put the team on his back and. I'm going to say with my rose-colored goggles that Jaden Ivey just figured out what he needs to do as the secondary guy next to Cade Cunningham with the effort he put in on the glass, the aggressiveness he played with getting downhill, and the ability to just hit open catch-and-shoot shots when they were available to him. 
against the Celtics. So if Cade Cunningham keeps playing how he did and, and Jay Nivey figured something out here, I think they might pull one out uh, on the backs of those two, assuming Bojan knows how to shoot the basketball, which he's not the past two games. I would say the cruel version of the narrative. The, the cruel version of the narrative is that the the Raptors absolutely demolished the Pistons behind Scotty Barnes, who was in the same draft class as Kate Cunningham. And it creates a lot of dumb narratives that I don't want to hear, which I've heard a lot of narratives I don't want to hear this year. So I'm not discounting that possibility. Uh, the good narrative uh, that we would love to see is January 1st. It's a new year. It's 2024. Anything can happen. Their first game is that day visiting the Rockets. That's the Thompson Twins playing each other. That's Cade Cunningham, the number one pick, playing Jalen Green, the number two pick, who is struggling, even though the Rockets are much better. And, you know, if you're going to have a statement game to end a losing streak, and that you can't do better than pick January 1st against the Houston Rockets, who did a 180-degree different approach to the offseason this year by spending a bunch of money on some veterans, and uh, it's working, so go figure. Uh, And you couldn't do better than Cade outplaying Jalen Green and uh, Asor outplaying his brother Amin. I like it. Let's edit there. Let's be positive. We're predicting the Rockets on New Year's Day. That'll be the win. I like that. The narratives would be fun. Just let... Whatever we do, as long as I can keep these rose-colored goggles on, I am happy. All right, Sean. Uh, let everyone know where they can find all your stuff, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. As always, please just keep reading the Detroit Bad Boys website. That keeps the lights on on this YouTube channel and podcast feed. It uh, has a lot of great contributors that are trying to unearth good stories, good analysis about this woeful Pistons team and uh, just love the community we have there. Love the community we have here. So keep, keep involved. Don't lose hope. Cade Cunningham is showing you everything he needs to show you during this awful losing streak. I wish I spent more time absolutely praising the way he's played the last couple of weeks since he admitted the team was bad. He's, he's doing everything he should be doing and everything he can be doing. So Let's just get a win. Absolutely. All right, guys, we're going to wrap this up. So a special thank you to you, Sean Corp, for supporting the show. We appreciate you, man. And and shout out to all you guys for these great questions, these great talking points today. Uh, We'll catch you next week, whether it's on your commute or live with us on YouTube or Twitter now. Uh, You can make comments there. uh, Get your questions in for that platform as well. We can't wait to talk more Detroit basketball with you.